was a surprise to walk in and see two like real real deal string players on stage for the record we did we recorded everything up here at Daptone but then I mixed the record uh, with my friend Doug Easley in Memphis and I had I knew people there who were string players and there were two songs that I wanted to add strings to so I added those after the rest of the recordings were finished and so obviously I couldn't bring them up here they live in Memphis Mm. but uh, Dave luckily he knows lots of string players and so uh, we got Eleanor and her friend to come and and, uh, play the strings with us tonight and we worked with Eleanor when we did the Mary Weiss record uh, for Norton a while back and um, so we so luckily we had an in with a cellist and she knew somebody who played violin so it worked out so you don't uh, you, you don't as a rule tend to know too many cellists I can't say that I know a lot you know like I say I knew somebody in Memphis but you know but uh, Dave does uh, more session work and stuff so he knows more people that you know you can call up and say I need I need a string player for tonight or you know it's the same way like but in in New York um, and other kind of recording meccas like Nashville or somewhere mm-hmm. where I've worked, it's much easier. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, Memphis doesn't qualify? Mm, it's not really a recording mecca like it was in the yeah. 60s. So, no, in fact, the the music union there is pretty small. Um, so it's not what it once was. And <clears throat> if you know somebody that plays violin or cello i mean obviously i do know people there who do but you it's harder to get um players who do lots of sessions every day and are really experienced with having charts thrown at them and kind of roll them with it and um when we did we did the parting gifts record in nashville a couple years ago and the engineer was like i could hear strings on this he's like i'll call a couple people and like two girls showed up on mopeds with you know, <laughs> cello <laughs> like, so um so yeah it's uh memphis was never really yeah that kind of town where you yeah. could just get string players you had to really know exactly what you wanted and, and kind of it was a little took a little more finagling to make it happen yeah so you don't you know when you when you decide that you want to have strings on a couple songs on a record you've really you've got to be committed to it you're not you really you're doing do. it on a whim right yeah exactly exactly and some string players um, are really good ear players, and they can you can sit down with a guitar and play out the notes and say, this is how I hear it. Mm-hmm. And then some string players really need a chart. And I got really lucky when I hooked up with Dave because he's great um, with transposing whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, if I come up with a an idea and I could play it out on a piano or play it out on a guitar, but I can't then turn it into a chart. Um, and Dave can, and he can do it really quickly. So it's really an asset to have him along in the band because he's great at stuff like that. I was talking to somebody about this recently in this, and I guess it's, and I, I think, I think he was referring to string players and, um, to a lesser degree, like brass players, but a lot of them, I mean, especially the, the classically trained ones, the ones who went to school for it. Mm-hmm. like, the idea of just going off on something is totally foreign to them. Yeah, um, classical um, string players don't jam. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they don't. <laughs> they don't even. It's like a foreign concept. You know, that's not to say that there aren't string players who do. Yeah. You know, because there there are, but that's it's rarer for sure. And especially when it when you're talking about concert trained people, that's it's just not. It's not that they can't do it. It's just not in their. 
regular everyday vocabulary. So, so what, um, you know, what, what made you put forth the effort to go out and, 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 and get these string players? Like what, what, I guess what kind of, what, what, what in the songs necessitated a string section? <clears throat> well, the one song just felt like it, <clears throat> I, I knew when I wrote it, like it felt like it needed strings. Yeah. And um, the other song, really, what it came down to was, we cut, we cut the, we cut the song as a band with two guitars, bass drums, organ. And when I got mixing the song, I realized that the, it seemed like the pitch was out on the electric guitar, and it wasn't quite jiving with the organ. So I replaced the electric guitar with an acoustic guitar, and then I realized after I did that that it was really the organ that was out. Hmm. So then I pulled the organ out, and all I had was this acoustic and the band and everything. I thought, oh, well, this would really lend itself to a string part, and that's when I started working on a string part for that song. But also, <clears throat> at that time, as I was kind of massaging the song, trying to get it right, like, like how I saw it in my head, I also realized that the song was too short, and I thought, well, it kind of needs a bridge, but it's already recorded. Mm. The band's not here with me. Um, but if I had a bridge where the band just kind of dropped off a cliff, and <laughs> it's just me doing the bridge, and I, I can do the acoustic part behind myself, that works, and then we'll just make a tape edit. I'll put the bridge in, and then we'll come right back to the song with the rest of the band. And especially once I kind of started looking at it that way, I thought, well, what would be great is if there were strings. And they just kind of dot the landscape until you get to that bridge. And then me and the strings go off the... I saw, <laughs> I saw, you, I saw you standing on stage, and, and I, you, gave, you gave some direction, something along the lines of, like, this is where it gets... This is where it gets tricky. It was, yeah. I mean, I, I and you know, and I, I, I understand that it was the, the string players' first time playing it, but I mean, the bands played it before, right? Oh yeah, the bands played it a lot of times, but I think um, this tonight was the first time they've ever played it, and this sound check a few minutes ago was the first time they've ever played it with strings. Mm. So there are cues and everything where people would usually follow me, but now you have to hear mm. kind of the decay of of the violin or the cello and. So that kind of changes the cues a yeah. little bit. Um, you just get used to not hearing that, and you just listen to the when the guitar stops and the bass stops, and then everybody has the sense of how big the space is there before we all come right back in together. Um, and it changes that a little bit when when the strings are there. And it's it was we did it once, and like we pretty much figured out right away how to make it work. It's exciting, though. A little bit of, like, <clears throat> walking, kind of sort of doing it for the first time. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But luckily, I mean, they've had the music for, a, you know, a week or so now, and they really nailed it. Like, the, obviously, they've really rehearsed it. Like, it didn't take any kind of real work. I mean, it was... They were pretty much spot on as soon as we started playing the songs. It, it's, it's crazy to me to hear that you're kind of... I, I mean, I guess this is probably, if anything, symptomatic of, of how you're writing songs now versus what you used to do. You know, I guess because you're, you know, you're you're at home, you're writing these songs, you're you're bringing them to the band later, right? Right. But you're only really hearing them fully realized for the first time when well, you're listening to the mix. A lot of times that's the case. Um, maybe a little less so with this record than previous records. Usually, um, with 
other lineups of the group, usually all the musicians live in one town. Mm. And so when I start writing songs, you know, we'll have a regular rehearsal day every week and we'll come together and I'll play the song for everybody and we'll kind of slowly build the song together and I'll kind of explain how I hear the bass part or how I hear the piano or the drums. But with this record, being that everybody lives in either Brooklyn or New Jersey, Mm. and then I live in Asheville, then it really does require you to build the song into a pretty cohesive demo and send it to them ahead of time that way. Now, whereas before, I would just play the guitar and sing the song, and we would go from there. But since I can't be there for rehearsals, they really really need a, a clearer picture of how I hear it. So for this record, I sent them demos where... I played the piano, I played the drums, I played the bass, I played the guitar, I sing, I sing the backup, and I kind of build the song on a, you know, I just, I have like a, a four track at home, mm. I just build the demo with pretty much all the parts and send them that. Then there's room for them to change those and kind of make the dynamic work exactly mm-hmm. what seems natural to them, to the, the way it would seem natural for them to play it. But they have like a really kind of sound foundation to build on and and a pretty clear picture of what the song should sound like you know you you know what you want every single piece of the the song to sound like i don't normally like i said and you know if it was something where we all lived in the same town that wouldn't be necessary yeah i would you know would come together in a different way but in this instance with the space between us i find that it was very helpful to go ahead and give them a demo that it was like a really clear picture of kind of what everything was supposed to do are are you are you happier with the end result when you're i don't want to say like micromanaging but when in a way you're kind of like when you're controlling to a degree every single instrument versus being a little more collaborative i mean and, and i guess in a sense you at least have more control over what the final song sounds like. I think the the key to it is to be flexible yeah. and not be married to the demo. Like the demo is like a great picture of kind of what you want it to sound like or a, a general idea of where you're headed. But, you know, you got to be flexible. And if the bass player says, eh, you know, I played that part you had on the one song, but once I started playing it with the drums and he kind of changed his part a little bit, mm. it didn't make as much sense. So now I'm going to do this. And I hear it, and I go, "Yeah, of course that makes sense. I see where your your head is." And like, usually things work themselves out pretty easily. Um, but so on, on some level, yes, it's it is kind of like micromanaging it. But the key is to just be yeah. let it be fluid, and and if other people have ideas about how to tweak it a little bit and make it work better for their their strength as a player versus what I may have put down on the demo like it might be totally unnatural for them you, you said you said this lineup of the bands and I know it's you know you and I guess you and Dave are the only two holdovers from from last time right yeah that's true um, what, what what I mean how, how did how did how did that happen is it just well um, I was gonna do I was gonna do a, a solo EP um, that was just going to be called Greg Cartwright and uh, I was going to work at it on that record in Nashville at Dan Auerbach's got a studio there and he was going to produce it. And uh, so we, when I started setting that up, I called some people that I knew in Nashville, uh, like 
Patrick Keeler, who's the drummer for the Greenhorns, and a couple other people like, hey, could you guys kind of be my band for this record? I'm going to be there for a week working on it. And tentatively got, you know, everybody lined up. And then, of course, when I got there, like, people had, you know, gigs or had to travel Mm -hmm. unexpectedly. And so I called Dave, and he was going to work on it with me. And I said, "Uh, you know, my drummer can't do it. He said, oh, maybe you should say something to Mikey from the Javons because uh, he'd probably like to do it. And then I said, you know, when I talked to Mike, he said, yeah, I'd be into it. I was like, why don't we just, why don't we ask everybody to come down? And I had met all those guys before because um, we were going to go out and do a parting gifts tour, which was mm. this kind of side project yeah. I did. And Dave was like walking down the street in, in New York and somebody's like, hey, hey. He's like, uh, I know you're the keyboard player from The Raining Sound and I've got a band I'm putting together and uh, we all really like the way you play keyboards. Would you maybe come and play with us? And he said, yeah, sure. Uh, so <laughs> so there's some guy on the yeah, street? Yeah, random. <laughs> and that became the Javons. And then when we did the Parting Gifts tour, Dave said, hey, they would love to go out and be the opening band mm. for these slots and I could do double duty and play keyboards with them and then play keyboards with The Raining Sound if that's cool with you. And I said, yeah, that sounds great. Um, and so we were all on tour together for a while. So I really got to know them. Yeah. Uh, I had met them all before, but I got to know them in, in that way that you get to know people when you're traveling together day in, day out. And that's the, when the I good knew and the bad. And yeah, the, exactly. Yeah. And you know, whether they have the kind of sense of humor to really cut it on the road. It's good to see people at their absolute worst. Yeah, exactly. Cause those are like trying circumstances yeah. when you're on the road, you're not eating right. You're not sleeping yeah. well. You're, you know, it's yeah. like you're not living your normal life. So when you see people and how they react to stress in a situation like that, you know whether or not you can really spend a lot of time with them in that situation. And um, that's why when we started working on that the EP, like I said, yeah, I could. why don't we just get all those guys to come down because I knew that they were great players mm. and I also knew that we all really got along. So there would be, I would be able to like give them direction on songs and know that they would be able to follow my lead. So um, after we finished that EP, I was initially going to just make it a Greg Cartwright thing. And I was like, well, maybe this would just be the new lineup of The Raining Sound. Mm. Um, was, what, what, what state was the band I was thinking in? about just kind of folding The Raining Sound at the time. Because mm. um, so, this is, I mean, this is probably the, the most successful, it's got to be the most successful project you've had, right? It's definitely the thing I've done for the longest. Yeah. Um, because, I don't know, I guess The Oblivions was... It wasn't super successful, but it was, you know, it, we got plenty of attention and but stuff. But you built, I mean, you've, you've been able to build on that for this, at the, at, you know, it's, you, and, then, and then merge, you know, is, and that's a, that's a pretty big step up in, in a lot of ways, at least in terms of, like, distribution. It is, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's been really, it's been really cool to be on a label that has good distribution, that does do lots of promo and press, and just to see how that affects um, how accepted a record might be or how, how, how much of a larger audience you might be able to tap because, you know, they have a, a higher profile. But, but take, taking a step back, why, why were you thinking of folding the band after, you know, a, a couple of pretty, pretty great and, and pretty successful records? Mm. Well, my bass player... Dave was also in a band called Freakwater um, that were from Illinois. And Dave was starting to play 
they hadn't played. They were kind of on hiatus for a long time. So he was starting to do that a little bit more. And then um, Lance, my drummer, um, it was getting really hard for him um, to be on the road a lot, um, mainly because he was the only one of us that had like a real job mm. um, at Lark Books uh, doing publishing work. And then also um, he had uh, pretty severe arthritis issues that it really started to – it wasn't that playing was so hard for him, but being – like crammed up in a yeah. car for several hours yeah. was really was really hard on him. So I thought, well, if I don't have these guys, I don't know if I really want to. Maybe I'll just do something else. Yeah, you know. Um, and that's when I started work thinking about doing the solo EP. And then once we started playing with all those guys and Dave, like it just seemed like a natural fit. And I thought, well, maybe I don't have to switch gears maybe i'll just keep doing the raining sand i'll just get an infusion of you know like kind of fresh ideas and fresh players you know you get i mean you start getting into like interesting sort of philosophical territory there you know especially as somebody who's been in as many bands as as you have as far as what makes a band a band i mean you know there's there's still two of you and and obviously um well sonically dave, it's, dave was out of the original band so Dave was not on the first three records. So. But there's still, I guess there's still some carryover from... Yeah, absolutely. There was, um, I mean, like, by the time Dave played in the band, um, there was no crossover. Dave was, like, in mm. Mach 2 of the band, mm-hmm. you know. So, like, it had already turned over from the original lineup. When I moved away from Memphis to North Carolina about 10 years ago, um, that's when the band first changed lineup. And I had to find players that lived in North Carolina that could play with me. So that, so that, I mean, I guess that speaks even more to that question of like, you, you, you keep the name around for, for convenience sake because, you know, people sort of know what they're getting into. Well, I do it mainly because it, I have a vision for this project. Yeah. And I have a vision for the sound uh, of what kind of songs I want the writing sound to be. And what I want the songs to sound like, and kind of a kind of a heritage that I want to draw from, and make that part of this band, and, and keep mm-hmm. going forward with it. So, to me, um, it's it's not that it's not important who's in the band because it is important. That's why it's really important to pick the right people. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, um, you know, I have been able to shift lineups and still stay true to my original idea of the band. Um, now there have been times when I thought maybe I couldn't. And that's when I've thought about, well, maybe I'll just do something else now. Um, and so it was just total luck that, uh, Mikey and Mike and Benny were able to, to kind of jump on board because if not, if it had been other players, I may have, I may not have been in the mood to call it the raining sound Mm -hmm. because it might've sounded too different, but luckily they were kind of, they really they were pretty familiar with the raining sound and and they were they were fans and and so they knew exactly what I was going for so it was it made the transition really smooth well there's definitely and you know obviously this is the sort of thing that people who write about rock music like like to jump on but there's definitely a, a change a bit of a change in tone you know it's 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 and, and I think this like it's becoming all the more apparent to me as I'm you know as I'm seeing you playing with these these string players um, I mean, obviously, like, 
there's there's some faster songs you know the the first song is faster you've got you know you played you went through my mind which by the way like to, sounds a lot like a a mid-period Van Morrison song to me. I don't know if anyone's <laughs> gotten that before. I've but. had a couple other people say that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm getting like Moon Dance era Van Morrison on that one. Uh, but but I mean, there's definitely it, it's a raining sound record, but it, it's it sounds different. It sounds different than the last record. Yeah, and the last record sounds different than the record before that, and that record sounds different than the one before that. The very first raining sound record, uh, Break Up Break Down, is all ballads. Um, so, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's like. But then again, like the, but then the idea is the same, hmm. you know. And so with each record, I try to um, grow a little bit and take the basic concept of what I want the band to sound like and what kind of songs I want to write, and kind of play with it a little bit. So, I mean, I think that's true from record to record, <clears throat> and it does definitely have something to do with who's playing on the record, because I want the players to to give me the the best that they have and I want to play to their strength. So whatever the dynamic of is with me and those other four people will decide kind of where the record is going. But, um, I kind of lost track of what I was saying. Um, but at the same time, um, I think that that's true. It would be true from record to record anyway, because Mm -hmm. the first three records are all the same people Mm -hmm. and they're all drastically different records. And they sound completely different. Time Bomb High School sounds different than Too Much Guitar, and neither one of those sounds like yeah. Break Up Break Down. So, and I feel like probably a lot of people have never even heard Break Up Break Down because it was so early uh, in the band and before we really garnered any attention outside of Memphis. You'd be surprised, like especially the way people listen to music these days. I mean, it's so easy to like just get every single thing somebody's produced. Yep, that's true. That's true. Um, everything's available online yeah. now. Yeah, it's, it makes uh, record sleuthing um, child's play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's still <laughs> a few out there. When I was a kid and I was, you know, getting into records and hunting records, like, that's how we always refer to, like, I'm a record hound or I'm, I'm or hunting records. Crate, so I was crate like, digger. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, crate digger wasn't around yet, but, you know, people who were always looking for records were record hounds. And, and it really was a matter of digging and searching and looking and mail order and you know it was a different world like now everything is like right at your fingertips and i think there's probably positive and negative for that as well you know like everything's so available that it it you know the hunt is no longer there yeah i was i was i was talking to somebody about this recently and i I think like to me the major downside i don't even think you know i mean obviously the hunts like the you know going to the record store was fun but to me, the major downside, and this is probably something you would appreciate as much as anybody, is somebody who, like, again, you know, you did that, the Murray Weiss record, and you're working with all these really, it's like, you know, dudes du- dudes and ladies from, you know, the 60s, like, you know, Memphis recording scene, but the, the thing that you lose entirely is any sense of context. Right. Yeah, because because it's, it's so much easier. Yeah. You know, um... Yeah, I just think, you know, when you're when you have to look so hard for the record, when you finally find it, you know, you hear about a record or you read about it in a fanzine and then you finally track it down, it's like you're really focused. Yeah. You give that record all of your attention yeah. to really like find out what's so wonderful about it that people had to write about it. Yeah. And uh 
that's a lot more intense and personal than like, oh, so-and-so said this is good. There it is. Yeah, it's okay. I don't know. I kind of like this other thing that came out last week better. You know, it's like, it's just so... You, it just doesn't have the emotional attachment. Well, yeah, I, mean, yeah. I was, I was uh, on, on my way over here. I was reading an interview with you from a couple of years ago, and um, you were talking about a, like a little Eva record, and you, you mentioned that, like, very it was lo- locomotion. You mentioned very specifically what the cover of the album looked like, right? <laughs> Which is another it's like, like her riding on a train, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like, and and you know, now I'm thinking about like you know all these all these great new records that that i love you know like you know like listening listening to your new record for the first time i'm like well what is my visceral contextual connection with this album like you know what computer was i sitting at when i listened to it for right the first time? what what tiny speakers that sound like shit yeah <laughs> was my first experience of this record yeah. i kind of and that's kind of a drag too like that's not that's i feel like kids get cheated in a way because they hear things that were recorded analog and in mono and they're hearing it through these little like computer speakers like you know squashed into some kind of weird stereo format and it's not the experience so um if they dismiss it out of hand i can't blame them because it probably is not the best way to be introduced to the record. Well, that's I, mean, I don't know. Isn't that isn't it sort of the modern day equivalent of the like the Barry Gordy like car stereo thing? Like it sh- it should sound good through it should anything. Sa- it should sound good through anything, but it but no because car stereos never had speakers that small. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, yeah. it really is a new level of kind of bad sound, like um, computer speakers and like little earbuds that. You know, or yeah, super cheap, and I, I don't know. It's just like, and also like uh, things being compressed into files. Yeah, like it's not the same. Like um, radio, definitely. You know, r- AM radio and everything was that was a different experience entirely than being at home with the hi-fi and playing the record. For sure, those two things were different, but they were not as drastically different as an analog experience in your house with a record or even a CD for that matter and like hearing something on a laptop it's like it's pretty drastically different I was I was interviewing a a director a a couple of years ago and you know he makes these like big beautiful nature documentaries and was just like he just sounds so defeated when we were talking about watching movies on the back of back like of an airplane. Yeah, it's the same. It's the same deal, right? It kind of is. Yeah, I mean, you put all this work into it, and you you labor over it so that it's a fantastic experience. Yeah. And then somebody goes, um, "What if we squash it <laughs> and like and make it so people can watch it um, as as they're riding in an airplane or whatever?" <laughs> you know, like. You know, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, but at the same time, um, sometimes something is so good that it, yeah. it translates anyway. And maybe that's the mark of something that's really, really, really great. I don't know. I think, I think the upside to all this is, you know, cause I know, I know you're somebody who, I mean, I, I know, I like, I know you were like a hardcore fan, obviously, like garage fan. I was, I was in, um, Playing garage bands and punk bands, I never yeah. really liked hardcore. Uh, I tried to like hardcore, 
I went to hardcore all age shows yeah. in the eighties, and there were some bands that obviously when some bands I would go to see, and it really spoke to me because it was obvious to me that they really were. First of all, they were usually the older bands, yeah. and they were really people who came from more of a rock and roll sensibility, and like kind of moved towards punk, and they still had a sense of melody, and they had a sense of dynamic, whereas hardcore bands were, let's play as loud and fast as we possibly can, and fuck melody, and fuck, you know, saying anything. You know, I mean, it just, like... It just did not interest me. I tr- I really did try. <laughs> like, it's, it's weird though. Like you know, you, like you. It's not weird. I mean, it, it's obvious why. But as as you get older and start to appreciate nuance more and, and realize that like you don't necessarily like you know you were taking principled stands against things at the time, and maybe they sort of made sense to you at the time. But now looking back on them, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it's like. You know, I think with I think hardcore is probably just like any other genre of music in the sense that there are millions of bands doing it and probably 10% of them are doing something really cool. Yeah. And the rest is just imitation and uh you know, peer pressure and all this other stuff. You know, it's like I, you know, like I had lots of friends who were would go to all age shows with me and and they would start hardcore bands and and you know i even like tried to like play guitar with some of these people and it just i just didn't have the drive to play that fast or play chord progressions it didn't make any sense to me like i didn't hear any melody there mm-hmm. so it, i couldn't get interested you know like and then i would see other bands that were that were doing something completely different that was more Tied to an aesthetic that I could understand. I could understand the gun club. I could understand the cramps. I could understand where the misfits were coming from. I could understand, like... But well, that's it exactly. I mean, that's the context is literally where they're coming from. Like, yeah, exactly. Well, it's like, those are... All that stuff's, you know, based on former uh, concepts of music yeah. that, you know, were very melody-oriented. Um, so even if they're raw and nasty sounding and crazy it still uh it's it still speaks to me in a way that i can i can understand what's happening but with hardcore i literally was lost i didn't understand it but like you know 20 20 years ago or whatever would you know would you have could, could you have foreseen a time when you would have brought brought a string section onto a record oh absolutely yeah, okay. i always wanted strings <laughs> Well, when I was growing up, my dad had a pretty big record collection, and I grew up on a lot of 50s and 60s pop and 70s hard rock and power pop, mm-hmm. and um, uh, my dad's, one of his favorite artists was Harry Nilsson, mm-hmm. and so since I was little, I really, I thought he was the greatest yeah. singer of all time. You're, when not, I was, you're not wrong. Yeah, well, it was <laughs> great, and I remember seeing, um, like in my junior high school, like, the kids who were into punk, they would have the leather jacket and they would write like their favorite hardcore band name yeah. across the back. And so I didn't really know what punk was at that time, but I liked that idea. I liked the the look. You know, I thought it was very cool. And so I showed up to school with like a jacket that said 
Nilsson <laughs> across the back. And I guess it's kind of lucky that nobody even <laughs> knew what the reference was. Like, that could have just been like a Scandinavian. Exactly. Death band. metal band, right? <laughs> um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, so it's like I, I always um, loved pop music and music that kind of straddled the line between folk rock and hmm. and uh orchestral pop and um things with big arrangements and you know Phil Spector stuff. I mean I loved all that stuff. Yeah. So that was that was my background in music was all that stuff. So when I started trying to listen to what my peers were listening to was when I was introduced to punk and hardcore and things like that. Um and like uh kind of like darker metal and kind of crossover metal that was happening at that time, Metallica and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I tried, but I just, it just, like I said, I mean, it just didn't, I didn't understand it. Did you feel like your kind of early, your, your early shots at, at music making were, 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 were necessarily cool? I mean, it sounds, it sounds like you're kind of going against, you know, what was, what, what was cool at the time. Yeah. I mean, like when the first, um, the f- one of the one of my first bands that really played out very much um, was the Painkillers, mm-hmm. and that was, you know, like we were we were covering like Yardbird songs yeah. and and then like writing our own songs and also doing like you know kind of like um, <laughs> like Tom Waits covers and things that we thought were really cool, but not that doesn't sound like that make sense I mean that doesn't make any sense to me at all as a yeah. cohesive well I mean I mean yeah but it, it does it <laughs> seems weird right but in our in our heads like it, all of that stuff was very related yeah um, but you know then like I mean really by the time I started doing a more punk type band was years mm. after high school because um, that was the oblivions yeah. and really the oblivions kind of took shape because um, I had been out on tour with a friend's band playing drums. When I got back, Jack, who I'd been doing a band with, was trying to teach our friend Eric how to play guitar. Eric worked at a, a record store and had great taste, knew music better than anybody. You know, he, he really had great taste. But he didn't play an instrument and he was trying to learn guitar. And I think we just kind of thought, well... If he wants to start a band with us and we're going to be a trio, then we're going to have to keep the songs very simple. Yeah. So if we try to shoot more towards the Stooges and Bo Diddley, we will be on ground that he can firmly stand. But if we try to be um, playing ballads and waltzes, and and it's just not going to work. So kind of the the reason that the Oblivions was more of a punk band and kind of took that direction was it was just... It made the most sense um, in a practical way because he couldn't really play anything else. It had to be very simple, you know. Was was that uh, so? What was that like going back and doing doing the reunion and playing these really really simple songs? It was great because he really hasn't progressed very much as a player. <laughs> he, he will be the first to do it. <laughs> and it's great because. I love that kind of simple music too. I love the yeah. Stooges. I love sure. Bo Diddley. I love, you know, like good basic, like very percussive blues, like like heavy 
like like all those Bo Diddley records. People talk about the Bo Diddley beat. Well, yeah. the Bo Diddley beat is not just like one beat. It's not just like every song is the same. It's just that the percussion is everything mm. in a Bo Diddley song. It's a do 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 do, but it's also the guitars. Everything, everything, literally the guitar, the drums, the bass, everything that's happening is a percussive instrument. But like it's 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 simple by its nature. But you know, I was, I was listening to Bo Diddley the other day, and like I, I mean, and this like, this might just be the nature of like him kind of building his own guitars, but you, you can't. You, you, you couldn't in a million years sound like Bo Diddley. Well, it's definitely something to shoot for. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's very simple. I mean, his style is very simple. Something about that tone, though. like just the Tone is great. Outer space tone. Yeah, no, he gets great tone. I mean, but and, and it's not a conventional tone. Yeah. But also, he does lots of rakes. He's constantly, it's like everything is a drum. Everything happening on those records has a percussive element to it. And it makes it very tribal, and it makes it, you know, and it's very simple. It's two, three chords. And um, with the Oblivions, you know, and it's the same way with the Stooges. Those guys were not terrific players. They were very, they were very much into, like, making really crazy ragas and, you know, things that are, like, super percussive, easy riffs that are just, like, chugging. Like, I mean, and that's, you know, we decided, okay, well, we can do this. You know, if, if he can only play you know, a couple chords, then we will play very percussive rhythms and come up with like some kind of simple melody that'll go over the top of it. And that was the whole idea for, for the oblivions. I mean, so when we came back together last year or the year before and made that record is like, it's pretty easy because we just put our oblivions hats on and, and pretty much said, okay, well we did it then you know we can do it now i mean it's like it's not like at that time i wasn't um a good enough musician that i couldn't write complicated songs because i'd already been writing them for years but it was just like you know you just put if you decide you're going to do some particular kind of thing then you just you say okay this is what we're going to do well yeah and i well and i realize obviously they're two entirely different things in a lot of ways but is it I mean, you know, ultimately, what 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 is the more enjoyable experience is work, working with these very clear constraints, or you know, working in a in a space where you the can constraints bring are nice. Yeah, the constraints are actually kind of liberating. Yeah, you know, because you don't have to think about uh, the complicated melodies, or you know, how am I going to sing this? Ugh, one part's really high. Yeah, whatever. You know, it's like. It doesn't matter because that's not the point, you know. So with with that band, it's actually great to do that, and then it then it feels great to switch gears and do raining sound because it's two different headspaces. Is, is that why you've got both fulfill a different need? Is is that why you've got so many side projects? Seem, seem it is. All time? It is because I like a lot of different kind of music, so yeah. I want to be able to do a lot of different things. And the Oblivions is not a band. That is flexible. It is, has to be that. Yeah. And that's cool. I'm cool with that. Whereas something like the raining sound, the thing I like about it is it is a flexible yeah. thing. It can be slow or fast or hard or it can be, you know, ballad or, you know, it can, it can, there's more room to move and flux. Whereas like the oblivions is just kind of one thing. And, and you've, I know, I know you've talked about this a lot, but um, I, I know that you're, in, in some sense, pretty much all of your songwriting is 
autobiographical and I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering like how, you know, in a sense, like settling down and having a family and all these other things, like if that's had a really clear impact on your songs. Life has, yeah. in general, you know, just all the things that happen to you in life and the things that happen to you as you get older, you know. Um, when you're younger, you, you know, all your friends are living their lives and you're living your life and it's an adventure and it's a journey. And, and then when you get older, you know, people die and, you know, things change and life gets a lot more rigid and, and you have other people to live for other than yourself you know you have to think about and for me that came really early because I had like right out of high school I had my first son Andrew and then like five years later Alex and then a few years later Ruby and so that was all even before the oblivions so I've always had kids my oldest son now is 22 uh, and then Alex is in his senior year of high school now and um, Ruby, my youngest, is going into sixth grade. She'll be 11 in a month. So so it's always, for me, it's family has always been yeah. s- something that's been there, you know, almost as long as I've been playing music. So It never occurred to you to uh, get a real job? <laughs> it did. Yeah. I even tried it a couple times. But I, I found that I'm not very uh, suited for most jobs. There you go. That's great. Cut right of the raining sound. Uh, easily, easily one of my favorite bands going right now. Always a pleasure to see them play live. They've got a new album out right now on Merge called Shattered. And Greg has been in so so many bands over the years. Uh, the Oblivions, the Compulsive Gamblers, the Deadly Sanks. I think we like touched on a few of these over the course of the conversation, but really way too many bands to fit into a 45-minute long conversation. Um, he's in the Parting Gifts, really terrific band with Coco of the Ets. Uh, they've, they've got an album coming out in the, the, the not-so-distant future, I think. Uh, Greg is one of those rare instances of, of a, a rock and roll musician who kind of makes no bones about being a, a, a really, really big fan, and I think that comes out... Um, I mean, obviously it came out in the conversation, but I think it comes out in, in the music that he makes, bands like Raining Sound, comes out in his side projects, uh, and, and, and then obviously it comes out when he, when he works with somebody like Mary Weiss of, of the Shangri-Las. Uh, Greg was really instrumental in helping her, her, her career get back on track. He helped her produce her first record in a few decades, wrote some songs with her, played some backup. Um, so... Very few people in this world that I'd rather sit down with for, for 45 minutes and, and just, just just talk about music with. So, so absolute pleasure speaking with him. And, and, and certainly if you get the opportunity, go see the band when they play live in your town. So thanks so much to Greg for taking the time to do that. Uh, thanks to Christina from Merge for, for helping set this thing up. Uh, thanks to Brian, as always, for editing the show together. Thanks to everybody at Boing Boing. You can check out the show or the, the Boing Boing iTunes page. And while you're over on iTunes, you should take the opportunity to, to rate the show. If you liked what you heard, give us a, a few stars. And uh, by, by few, I mean a, no fewer no fewer than five stars. Uh, you can also send us an email. It's reylcast at gmail.com if you've got any feedback for the show. And uh, the Tumblr, very similar. So you only actually have to write one address down. That's reylcast.tumblr.com. That's the, the first and some would say the best place to get the show. You'll get it there uh, hours, if not days, before it goes up anywhere else. 
Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody, for, for tuning in. I hope you like the show. We've got another, other, another one coming up uh, just about this time next week. So stay tuned for another episode of RIYL. 